Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Geology on the Rocks. I'm your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggett. And we have gotten on to episode 11. So we've graduated from our 10th episode. And unfortunately, we're not together this time, Brian. But I think our next one, we're going to have another guest with us like we're going to have today. But we have named this one Dating Relatives Bad, Relative Dating (laughs) Good. So episode 11. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it's going to be fun. If you're dating your relatives, please go the way of the dodo bird. Yeah, no. So like, uh, it, I mean, it, it, it fits in nicely because where you were this past weekend, so you went on a trip this weekend. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Brian? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, we took the kids up to Arkansas and went to the Crater of Diamonds State Park and then up to Hot Springs so they could see all that. But Crater of Diamonds was awesome. It's actually a huge volcanic pipe that came up about, I guess, I think it was like maybe a hundred million years ago. I'm, I may be messing that up, but basically it brought up <laughs> this ultra mafic rock that had brought up some diamonds that had occurred when, like, I think these diamonds are probably like Precambrian, so billions of years old. Okay, is it? They bring them up, yeah. Oh no, so, what I was going to say is it was is it associated with a, a kimberlite pipe? It's essentially the same thing as a kimberlite. Okay, I'm going to be a snob and say it's a lamproite. Okay, <laughs> which is it's like trace minerals that you would have to spend time with, I don't know, like a Raman spectrometer to figure out. But yeah, like it's it's basically the same thing. So you had this huge explosion and the ash fell down right where it was and all the diamonds are there on the surface. And so you can mine them out. Did you find um, any? Did not find any there, but I oh. brought back some of the rocks. No, I saw there. that. Yeah, you sent me a picture yeah. of that and you started like saying all these crazy words and I was like, you're making <laughs> up words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe I found one, but it's maybe a millimeter. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really tiny. Um yeah. Yeah, that's what she said. Yeah. Oh did you go <laughs> into any in any hot springs in Rolex? No, because they could not you have to be fourteen. Okay. So they couldn't actually go. But I did let them actually where it's coming out of the mountain, you can see that. It's all there at the national park. So do you remember I at, at, see that. where okay, so we were in Las Vegas, New Mexico for field yeah. camp and I just remember so that water was so effing hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if it's, it may even be hotter than the one at Hot Springs. The one at Hot Springs is like 143 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But I remember y'all got in did, did, you one of the ones? No, no, I don't think anyone. Okay, okay so I, I remember one of the first days that we were out there, I, uh, my ankle made love with a cactus and I was like, oh, yeah. I'm going to take out all these things and stick it in this water. I could barely put my feet in. No, I think when we were having lunch that one time, <laughs> there were people that came yeah, and right. they got in and we were like, okay. Yeah. I just remember thinking like, okay, well, these are not actual, from what I remember, it wasn't like a state park or anything. I don't know. But it was just out there. And I was like, I have no idea what's in that water. Yeah, it was like, it was on the the side of the, like, it was, it it (laughs) fed, it fed into that river. But I remember it was, it was really cool. And then it, and then, and it was hot. I just remember how hot that water was. And there was no way, no way. No. So we thought we would uh, start off with a few quick news items. I guess we'll call it new news. The the, the, the first article I wanted to, it's not an article. We're just going to quickly go over this. But so some scientists, they were looking at why these, what leafcutter ants, right? I think I sent you the article, leafcutter ants. Yeah. And what drew me to this article in particular is that they were trying to figure out what was the 
armor for these little or tinier leaf ants that weren't getting like destroyed by these just larger ants period and they didn't they couldn't figure out what their shell was made of like what their armor was and then i was reading it it was like they didn't even they think that it was uh, <laughs> what it could be until i think one of the the graduate uh, research assistants like was washing his mouth out with uh, with mouthwash and it he was like, oh, well, let's put this uh, this ant in that, and it kind of dissolved. So what they found... God, God, so, the ant, <laughs> no, no, I think the, the it was dead. Like So like the exoskeleton uh, oh, or yeah. something, but something, it, it, it was actually, the ants are made of calcite. So not calcite, but they have like yeah. these tiny calcite armor that uh, encrusts their, their, their skeleton. So That's minerals... Cool. <laughs> <laughs> the most baller shit ever. Yeah, no, so think I think of like Dave Chappelle, like when he was like putting diamonds on everything. These ants running around with calcite crystals. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, you know, I mean, like, if you under your skin you had just a layer of calcite, like, I feel like I would be invincible. I guess that's what our bones are, though, right? Ants don't have bones. Uh, yeah, they don't. They don't have those. Well, I'll say one because this I like this new segment about the news. So China has they're about i guess they launched today a mission to the moon and they are going to go sample what is now the 10th spot on the moon and they're going to do age dating on these rocks and they're the mar basalt so the dark side or the dark places on the moon anyway so this is going to help us immensely because here on earth we have a lot of opportunity to date everything but our other except for your relatives yeah (laughs) (laughs) jesus nope just james (laughs) just james uh, but yeah, so like all the other like the the rocky planets, we we have a lot to learn still. Yeah, when they get these dates, they can see you know how far off are they on their hypotheses about the moon's history. Today, they think that like the the, the youngest of these basalts are like 1.3 billion years old, and so we'll see, right? Like, yeah, it's awesome. I I honestly wish I worked for NASA so I could go do stuff like this. But then I think of Interstellar and how he just gets lost out there. Oh, like, no. I'll never see my kids again. Oh, no. That terrifies me. Just I feel like just the aloneness, like, okay, I'm just going to start floating. But Yeah, forever. I mean, at least it would be a badass way to go. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be one of the, the cooler ways to go. Okay, and then I just wanted to bring up a fun fact about the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy versus the number of trees on the planet earth there are more trees on earth than there are stars in the milky way galaxy boom what? yeah so they did wow. some kind of like a density study of trees versus like the, i guess however they map the amount of stars in the universe or i guess in the milky way is based on like star densities anyways i don't know how that works but they have estimated there are roughly around three trillion with a t trillion trees on the planet earth versus uh 400 billion i think that's the on the higher estimates two of stars in the in the milky way galaxy but i found that to be absolutely yeah. uh fantastic <laughs> that is awesome what you were saying earlier about the moon i feel like that's a good way to segue into what we're going to talk about today and again so it's not we're not talking about dating your relatives but we're just going to talk about relative dating 
and how we can take that and start to get kind of an outline of the events that have happened on Earth. So the idea of creating this time scale, so the importance of a time scale in the rock record and geologic and evolutionary changes throughout the history of Earth and without a time perspective, there's really, you, it's not really going to have any meaning. I think I think we've brought that up. There's, there's this also other element of it too, is just the vastness of geologic time. And it's in this, yeah. it's really, really hard to visualize. I know that we've talked about the the scaling. I thought another way to do this. So if everyone out there to think about how the the geologic time on Earth. So it's a it's pretty much accepted that the Earth is 4.5, 4.6 billion years old, right? So if you were to yeah. extend your arms out from side to side, that is Earth's history. Last week we talked about I guess what the Mesozoic. So before that, whenever we went in from I, we briefly talked about it, but the the Precambrian time, right, um, into the Cambrian explosion. So that would be roughly about where so let's say your left your left middle finger is when earth starts so if you stretched out your arm to the other side your right wrist is when you have this real explosion of diversity of life. Already we see that's that's kind of, I'm, you may hear me go in and out of like loudness, but that's because I'm like looking over at my right wrist. <laughs> so then um, so then, if you look at your middle finger, your right middle finger, right? So that last crease in your joint, that is when the dinosaurs went extinct. So when we talk about the Cretaceous, so if you look at, again, your left middle finger, look all the way over to your extended right middle finger, that last joint like the one that's right before your your fingernail that's when the dinosaurs went extinct and then if you were to just scrape the the very tip of your fingernail with a with a file you would have erased all of human history so that's how nuts and yeah the vastness <laughs> of it right so i think again we need to put something in some sort of kind of order yeah it's also wild like like if you see like a little rock outcrop out where you are it may look like, oh, you know what? That was all deposited right now. Like yeah. all these layers, because it's not tall. Like maybe you have a 10 foot outcrop. Maybe you only have a four foot outcrop, but it could have completely different strata in there. That could that could literally be hundreds of thousands of years that you're looking at or millions, depending on what's there. Yeah. And, and so also the sediment rate, right? Right. Yeah. So it really is hard to grasp. And so that's why the importance of figuring out and for the attempt to just quantify certain ways what kind of time has passed until now in the geologic record. And that that's really like why we're here geologically is to make sense of all the different stories that have happened Earth-wise. So we've established the fact that the geologic history is exceedingly long, right? And then, so there's, yeah. over time, there's been the numerous attempts that were made to determine the age and years. But we got to think about before we had actual numerical dating, we had to come up with some kind of system of methods that worked. So some of the methods appeared promising at the time, but none of the early efforts really provide anything really truly reliable. So the scientists were really trying to seek a numerical date to specify the numbers of years that have passed since any type of event occurred. But but anyways, today our understanding of radioactivity really kind of allows geologists and chemists and geochemists whatever to accurately really determine numerical dates for rocks that represent important events in history. But when we place rocks in their proper sequence of a formation, which formed first, second, third, and so on, 
on, this is where we're really establishing this idea of relative dating. So such dates do not tell us really how long ago that event took place, but only that it followed one even even and then preceded another, right? So this yeah. idea of relative dating techniques that were developed are valuable and still widely used. So when we use it, you can go out and kind of get a, a general idea of what's going on out there. So numerical dating methods did not replace these techniques. They simply just supplemented them, right? So I know we talked about last time the Jura Mountains, right? So anything that fossil yeah. assemblages was Jurassic in age. But what, what numerical dating has helped us do is now we can assign a date to what is Jurassic in age. So the... Yeah, it's kind of like phase one, phase two. So you go out, you're a field geologist, and you have the task of tell us when this was here, why why this happened, and in about when did it happen. So you, you go out, you make your field notes, and that's it. Like you can only go off of what is out there. So we use different tools that, and these are like tools of knowledge of learning about the earth and its processes. But basically that's phase one. Then phase two is, okay, if, if the study needs it, if it's that sensitive, we go in with absolute numerical dating. And so it provides a whole picture. You don't have to use both every time, but sometimes you need to. Yeah, no. And all of it is to when we establish a relative time scale, like, um, yeah, no, so, oh, Brian, I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, my God, you're me. Uh, you're oh, no. Yeah, so uh, they we established a relative time scale, um, and then they used a few basic principles or rules to be discovered and applied. So the this conversation that we're going to have today is really meant to serve as a guide, and the conversation is to introduce everyone, if you're not already familiar with it, to the applications of relative dating. So where we begin our talk is if we turn our attention to stratification, or basically what this means is layering or bedding of the sediments. So it is it's the most obvious large scale feature when we look out at the rocks. Like you were talking like you're um, earlier when you said, oh, if you look at these rocks, it looks like it was you know a couple hundred thousand years ago. But if we pay close enough attention, like some clues and uh, what's actually happening out there start to really uh, take shape if you take the time to study it. Yeah. And then bedding is is readily seen just in a view of the Grand Canyon or almost any other sequence of sedimentary rocks. So each of the beds or strata is the result of a natural event in geologic history. So we know that such as a flood or a storm. So we have that water that weathers stuff down. It's taking that sediment somewhere and it deposits it down. When we talk about a lot of these relative dating techniques, we also need to keep in mind that it's sedimentary. It's right. It's it's based on sedimentary rock. Like we can use igneous rocks when they when they cut across stuff, but mostly we're going to be in the realm of sedimentary rocks. Yeah, like um, yeah, definitely. Like anything that will be where we can see, like if they were horizontally placed, lava flows can also do that. But also, like in there was a question on the ASBOG test that I had that I was like, I had to read so many times because it's like, oh yeah, this looks like it came before this. And it was a, it was a relative dating question. Oh my But God. it was all metamorphic and igneous. Ew. So you, yeah, so you couldn't, there was no sedimentary stuff, at least all, is what the questions were asking about. And so you had to go through and see like what things cross cut others, what types of rocks were there first and when they metamorphosed into older or to other rocks. And so you can you can use relative dating for that, but it's a headache. <laughs> no, so, uh, but this is yeah. like my uh, absolute favorite part of geology. I I, I like uh, logic puzzles and I like just puzzles in general. And this is really... E 
you get to be like, I don't know, a detective. You're uncovering different events and timing things. So I, I, I enjoy <laughs> teaching this part the most too, like doing the labs and doing all the, the crazy pictures with the, the different timings of events. Yeah, yeah. So numerical dates. So when we differentiate the two, so numerical dates are going to be exactly what they sound like. They have an actual number to them and they specify the actual number of years that are going to have passed since an event occurred or actual numerical age of the rock. So we could say that like the, the number is based on radioactivity and is the ratio of parent isotopes and daughter isotope. We're going to get into this a little bit in a little bit, but for example, we would say that this granite intrusion is 250 million years old versus yeah. if we were to do relative dating where we would say the James Sandstone is older than the Brian Marl. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the, so these are the really? logical steps geologists take to interpret the rock record as seen in outcrops. So it's just this yeah. ordering rather than dating. Yeah, I wanted to point out just in case anyone's heard other names for numerical dating, so just so you don't think they're different. Numerical, absolute, and radiometric, those are all the same thing. So if you think we're talking about something else, I just remember as a, a new geology student, people would say things in the same way or different ways, but they meant the same thing. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell? Is this some <laughs> kind of secret that they're not telling me? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we'll get into these. There's 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 four basic, I guess, geologic principles that Stino came up with. Nikolaus Stino, the, the, the father of all of this. So one of the fundamental rules that we need to keep in mind with relative dating is the principle of superposition. And this one is simply going to state that any sequence of undeformed sedimentary strata or lava flows, the oldest rock is always going to be on the bottom and the youngest is always at the top. So you can visualize this, if you will, how this occurs if you imagine a stack of newspapers in the corner of a room. If every day you were to put another newspaper on that pile after several weeks have passed, you can think of it that you would have a considerable amount of newspapers stacked up with the oldest being at the bottom of the pile and the most recent on the top. Yeah, it can get complicated because I noticed you said undeformed and we do, we know as geologists and just people that admire pretty scenery that we have lots of deformation of these previously horizontal or super superimposed layers on Earth. And so we're left to look for keys of evidence that show which way is up or down. So you can have structurally a suite of rocks that have been completely overturned where mm -hmm. they're upside down. <laughs> and you may like look out there and see like, oh yeah, of course, like the oldest is on bottom, the youngest on top, but you may then traverse half a mile down the road and you'll see the same sequence, but it's flipped. And you have to use clues. You have to use relic sedimentary structures like ripples. Ripples usually would be on the top, especially if it's over like cross beds flute cast, which come from below and then up in the in the sedimentary structures and cross beds and forceps and like we talked about a few weeks ago, vesicles and basalt flows. That's usually the top of the lava flow where it's flowing and the gas is escaping into the into the air. So it's hard, but you're not stuck out there with without without any help. No, I get it. If someone's having trouble with this concept in class, what I usually, how I explain superposition is missionary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you just, if you're, if one person's on the bottom and someone's on top, it's a superposition, but right, it's, it's later. There's not really anything too special about it. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a super position. <laughs> oh okay. So anyway, you actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least you're not like for now, a creepy old guy thing. That's, no, but eventually I will be. A, so yeah. yeah. I think I'll next time I'll just, or maybe moving forward, I'll just stick with the newspapers in the corner. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, it gets a good chuckle and it kind of hopefully oh, yeah. sticks a little bit more. Okay. So the, the second principle that we're going to talk about is the principle of original horizontality that states that sediments are going to be deposited in a flat horizontal layers so we can recognize this easily if we consider sedimentary environments such as the sea floor that we've talked about or the bottom of the mm-hmm. lake you think of all those part- particles settling at the bottom they're usually going to be deposited horizontal so any storm or flood bringing sediment into these environments deposits it in a flat layer on the bottom because of the sedimentary particles are going to settle out under the influence of gravity so as a result it, it results in this flat horizontal layer of sediments that are going to be deposited so the, the the rock layers are flat and then they haven't been disturbed so this helps us determine that when i might it helps us determine the, the the timing of events if we yeah. know that it's superposition you kind of brought it up that you have to kind of use context clues if they're deposited with the oldest on bottom and they're deposited in flat layers so if we see an anticline going there and then we see flat layers on top we can use all these uh kind of these rules to help us out so we know that the the beds they had to have that that were deformed in these uh, anticline synclines so we know that they were deposited first then we knew that there was there's some sort of tectonic event that happened right so that caused right. the the actual folding to happen and then there was had to have been some type of uplift or not but you know then it had to have um, at least weathered to a flat surface and then uh, the the flat layers would be deposited on top of that so in general can just look at the 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 timing of three different events we see a sedimentation event so you would have subsidence right because it has to have room for sediment accommodation you'd have to have some kind of tectonic event that would have some kind of compressional forces and then you would have to have um, some more subsidence for that deposition to occur right yeah and generally this is true there's there's exceptions like continental slope and like any basin you'll have a slight declination towards the center of that basin so like here in texas we have we have a lot of that shallow marine stuff most of our cretaceous rock especially here in north texas that's not that is undeformed is seemingly flat but it does tend to have a dip gulfward like towards the gulf of mexico that that dip while not great is not truly horizontal you may be like 25 feet to the mile <laughs> kind of that kind of dip so you're like within like a degree, two degrees. So now it, and so, yeah. And so so it, 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 <laughs> semantics. It is, but like in the end, like it, it can make a difference when you're like dealing with a large scale problem. So I, like, I remember like I got corrected on that one time. I was like, uh, oh yeah, like these are like horizontal layers and like this one geologist ripped me a new one. He was like, these are not horizontal. They're definitely, I don't know. So, you, come on, but, dude. I mean, but that, that gets into the... <laughs> Uh, the next one, which is the lateral continuity, because they do pinch out because you do have this yeah. up or down. Yeah. So it's not ever going to be truly flat, but I think it just in the general sense, it's going to be horizontal. And I think yeah. it's and I think it's more so the the horizontality of between the beds, they're going to be parallel. Right. So, I mean, if they're going to be, you know, I guess that's a great, great point. Yeah. 
So I mean, uh, and I, then I don't know, but I, then I know also too, like the overall shape, like I wrote here, sin deposition, like when you have active uh, tectonic folding or faulting happening during active what sedimentation that you kind of get like these tilted, or like you get it elongated next to that fault versus where, where it pinches out. So you do get in the, I guess at least you can see, see it more so in seismic that you can see that, oh, this was during sin deposition. So it was being deposited while it was actively faulting. So it's stretches it out on one layer speaking of that like you'll have different formations that they've been called different things but they will pinch out across texas and they're just they're actually just different members and so you have like a beach line uh what's that called you're just a beach deposit <laughs> and then next to that yeah like beach faces and then you'll have lagoonal faces but it's still the same formation and so you have these like alterations in that horizontal direction but it's still like reflecting the same time and yeah. and deposition. Yeah, because if you, like uh, the the marine transgressions regressions, you're going to get these uh, where they're going to pinch in and out from one another, right? Yeah. So then that that, that brings us to like this uh, this third law. It's the law of lateral continuity. So it's the principle that if we consider again the sediments being deposited on the seafloor, the sediment is not only deposited in a flat layer. It is that layer that extends for a considerable amount of distances in all directions. So in other words, the sediments is laterally continuous in all directions so it's not just this one little part that you're looking at you got to think of it in the the grand scheme of things or the context of it so in other words the beds originate as a continuous layer that extend in all directions until they eventually thin out or grade what you were talking about into a different sediment type and this principle really is going to allow us to infer that the the layers of the originally continuous across let us say at the grand canyon for example that that on either side it's this it looks like the same rock so we can infer using this lateral continuity concept that if it was deposited in this large great area that we can assume safely assume that on either side if we have the sequence of rocks that let's say that it goes James Sandstone Brian Marl and then it goes into something 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 right and then on the other side we have that same sequence from lateral continuity we can safely assume that you know we had some kind of um, uplift and we had uh, erosion that caused this big rift in between or this canyon right so on either side it's the same thing yeah yeah and I think it's really, I think the super important thing there is like the part about extending it all in horizontal directions in both ways until it thins out to another type of material. I remember this one subsurface investigation that I did that is in a braided channel system. And so you would have like maybe in one boring, you would have just fat clay. Right. And then like 10 feet over at the same elevation, you would have poorly graded sand. So it's like you can't look at it too micro level. You have to kind of zoom out, like you're saying, like Grand Canyon, enormous, and look at it that way, like big picture to see what the depositional environment is. If you're like me, like I get way too into details, that can really mess up (laughs) your view of these things. Yeah, and I've had to correct myself quite a few yeah, times. Yeah, I because th- I, f- I feel like I'm using like general context. You're using like these case studies that you've done. And you're like, no, no, well, no. Well, but no, I think I'm telling myself no because I've like <laughs> learned that yes, they, these these old guys were right, <laughs> and 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 it's true. Like that's what's so cool is like I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've just been to some other canyons here in Texas, and it's amazing to be able to look 500 yards this way and then look 500 yards in the other way and you that same layer. 
Yeah, no. The whole way across. And, and, I, and I feel like whenever we're talking about these two, context is going to be key on everything. You can't just assume these are just basic geological principles that are generally going to apply, but we need to use common sense a lot of the time. Yeah. Of the three principles of superpos- superposition is the most directly applicable to relative dating. This, uh, we can examine any sequence of sedimentary strata and determine in a relative sense which beds are older and which are younger, except for the case, right, uh, when you were talking about uh, anticlines or we need to be cognizant that we can have recumbent folds and the beds are actually overturned on one another. So the again, the context clues are going to be very important as well. So all we need to know is whether the beds are right side up or not. So this complication comes because tectonic forces can cause sedimentary sequences to be tilted, folded, faulted, or overturned. Although the sediments are originally deposited in horizontal layers, they do not always remain horizontal. A trip to the mountains or a quick look in any kind of geologic uh, or geology textbook or Google search should convince you that many sedimentary sequences consist of layers or beds that dip at some angle to the horizontal and in some cases the beds are vertical or overturned completely. Other types of basic principles can be used such as principles of intrusive relationships. So these are we were talking a little bit earlier are these igneous intrusions that cut across sequences of sedimentary rock. The relative ages of these two units can be determined so that the, the sedimentary rocks are older than the igneous rocks that intrude them. So in other words the sedimentary rocks had to be there first in order for it to cut across or intrude. That thing had to be there already. Examples of of types of igneous intrusions or plutons are dikes, seals, stocks, and batholiths, which I think we talked about when we talked about volcanoes and magma. So dikes, magma. so dikes are relatively uh, narrow tabular intrusions that cut across the layers and sedimentary rocks, where, whereas seals have intruded along the layers of the sedimentary rocks, so along the bedding plains. Yeah. So there are, um, what are they called? I just said the word there. Oh my goodness. Is it congruent? Concordant? Concordant. There we are. Yeah. yeah. Concordant. Concordant. So they they don't cut across the layers. So, um, but we can still see there are other clues that we can get from that. So stocks and batholiths are larger and irregular. Plutons, batholiths are larger of the two, by definition, covering more than 100 square kilometers or 400 square miles, whereas stocks are less than 100 square kilometers. Anyway, so the law of cross cutting relationships. So simply put, younger features cut across older features. Yeah, in like a good example, you, the James Sandstone is overlain by the despicable Brian Marl <laughs> and is intruded by the Jason Dyke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you would you would see like you're on the bottom, I'm I'm on top. It's a superposition. Superposition. <laughs> <laughs> see? And then, and then uh and then Jason just penetrates both of us. Yeah, he, he goes right <laughs> through it. <laughs> There's also non-igneous dike. It's weird, like sandstone dike. Yeah, that that so I was thinking like could you get some kind of like exolution coming from from rocks too in pressure? Yeah, I think it has to do with pressure and sometimes water can carry them but it's not like the sand is not like cutting through the rock that's not what i'm understanding and it's not like an igneous intrusion where it's just like cutting through it might be like there's a fracture Mm -hmm. or something or water is hydraulically fracturing it that could be if you had enough pressure and um, then isn't it a change in pressure it kind of draws up the the sandstone through the is that yeah is that what's going to be happening yeah it can like yeah it could if you have enough pressure and then it, it depends how that the hydraulic regime is there i think but 
I don't know. It's I didn't know that was a thing until like my last year in undergrad, and I was like, whoa, okay. Oh, weird. So then, um, also that I think those are I'm gonna have to look into that because I I think I somewhat know what they are, but I somewhat don't know. So I'm gonna have to look into that. And then the the other one are gonna be these principle of inclusion. So inclusions, these are just fragments of one rock that or a rock unit that are enclosed within another rock unit. So much like the cross cutting relationships, rocks containing the inclusion have to be younger. Yeah, like the diamond and the uh, forsterite bearing the mantle rock that came up. That, oh. Those were xenoliths. Oh, look at in you! In the stuff that I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Xenoliths. So yeah, so in a Xenolith. sequence, uh, <laughs> in a sedentary rock. So if there is a bed of gravel, the clasts or inclusions of the gravel are older than the bed in which they are contained, known as the principle of components or inclusions. So in many instances, like the gravel directly overlays an irregular erosional surface. So that's one of the clues that we're going to see um, with that. So sometimes it is obvious from the lithology or the, the rocks that the clasts in the gravel bed are derived from the underlying partially eroded layer. So if, if this is the yeah. situation, it's going to be possible to place several layers and events in their proper relative order. So oh, we should... James, I just realized something. What's that? For one, I misspoke and I called a diamond a xenolith. That is false. It's a xenocrisp. Xenocrisp. Because it's a crystal. But we also did not link. Oh, yeah. We didn't cheers. Oh, okay. So, Here you go. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to you, my friend, my good friend. Yeah. So I All think, right. uh, to- oh, no, 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 because I think xenoliths, they are, if they're lithic, right? So if they're sedimentary and then the, yeah. the, the, the I guess the phenocryst or xenocryst, phenocryst, right? I don't know. Phenocryst is a large crystal in a, in a igneous thing. I would, like, if I was looking at a sedimentary rock, I would call it lithic fragment yeah. is the correct term. And you're right, like, there'll be a lot of our shale here in Texas will have a gravel bed on top, sometimes conglomerate on top. And you'll see little pieces of the shale that's from underneath it because it comes and scours it out. So then you know that that gravel body came first or the conglomerate came first and ripped out part of that shale and deposited in along the bed of whatever river it was deposited in. Okay, cool. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so I like the Eric, Eric just sent me a message yeah, saying he's, say, like, like, he's like, I'm ready. And I'm like, what? We might honestly uh, like get through unconformities. Do absolute dating next time. Yeah. Or we can just talk about it on Saturday. That's fine. Let's do it. I'm down. Okay, so when we say producing a gravel bed, so the gravel bed is sometimes called a basal conglomerate because it is the base of the sedimentary sequence overlying these erosional surfaces. So a similar line of reasoning may be applied to igneous rocks if xenoliths are present. And a xenolith, or what we were talking about as a foreign rock, is a piece of surrounding rock sometimes called country rock, which becomes caught up in an intrusion. So as magma moves upward, forcing itself through the cracks in the surrounding rock, sometimes these pieces of the surrounding rock break off or become dislodged and incorporate into the magma. What we're seeing here is like sometimes yeah. we can start doing too, so we can see emplacements of magma chambers. Not only does it like kind of char the outside and create this kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of... Uh, it's called assimilation. Yeah, but it, well, I was talking about like uh, where it chars the outside, where you get that that contact metamorphism. Is that oh, yeah. a pendant? Is that where, or is that, I guess, where it kind of like uh, chars all the outside of it? Anyways, but it, but sometimes you do see the assimilation in some magma bodies, but two, it will also, as it's cutting its way through, will incorporate some of the, uh, the rock. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like this uh, idea that we're doing it. Then we're going to go to contacts. Okay. So when we talk about these contacts between rock units, we're going to think of them as conformable or unconformable. Conformable contacts between beds of sedimentary rocks, right? So they're going to be either abrupt or gradual 
But most abrupt contacts are bedding planes resulting from a sudden minor changes in depositional conditions. Gradational contacts represent gradual changes in depositional conditions altogether. So conformable contacts generally indicate that there's no significant time gap or break in deposition that occurred. Uh, Unconformable (laughs) contacts or unconformities, as we call them, are going to be surfaces that represent a gap in the geologic record because of either erosions or non-deposition. So the time represents by this gap very widely ranging in millions of years or sometimes hundreds of million years, such as an erosional surface between the Precambrian rocks and recent sediments. So unconformities are useful in relative dating because recognize them allows us to distinguish between older rocks below that unconformity and then these younger rocks that are above the unconformity. These unconformities may be recognized by a variety of criteria, including sedimentary fossils or features, fossils, structural relationships that you talk about as clues to the other thing. There are four types of unconformities. So we have angular unconformities, and these are going to be characterized by an erosional surface that truncates folded or dipping tilted strata. Overlying strata are basically parallel to the erosional surface, so the rocks above and below the unconformity are not at an angle to one another. And I really want to point out that you can't just say it's uh, the unconformity is angular, right? So without context, it doesn't really mean anything. It's an angular unconformity. Yeah, and disconformities, they're characterized by an irregular erosional surface, and it that truncates flat-lying sedimentary rocks. So the layers, sedimentary rocks above and below that are parallel to one another. And then what I like to point out to, to whenever I, I teach it, I, I try to do these kind of things. So the D, that's there's sediment below it and uh, above that unconformity. So there's sediment with that D in the sediment versus the nonconformity, which are characterized by an erosional surface that truncates an igneous or metamorphic rock. A nonconformity mm-hmm. sedimentary rocks unconformably overlie igneous or metamorphic rocks. So you have non-sediment and sediment. So that non-sediment sediment is uh, a non-conformity. And then when you have sediment, sediment, it's a disconformity. Yeah. It's a lot easier with visual representations when you write sediment, draw this the squiggly <laughs> line that's the unconformity and you have sediment, then you can line up those Ds, kind of like we do sure. in the superposition. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you get the last one. Okay. Um, so paraconformities are characterized by a surface of non-deposition separating two parallel units of sedimentary rocks. The surface is virtually indistinguishable from a sharp conformable contact, and there's no obvious evidence of erosion. So an examination of fossils can reveal that there's considerable time, that there is a considerable time gap between the parallel layers of sedimentary rocks. Yeah, and these ones are like really, unless you're like familiar with I yeah. guess the sedimentary strata of the area, you kind of be like, I don't know. Yeah, I've never used that word in any report ever. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess there's a few places that, well, not a few, there's a lot of places, but I know you wanted to bring up the Great Unconformity, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the Great Unconformity can be seen across the globe. Closest to you and I here in Texas are the Sandian Mountains in New Mexico. Over there, you have these like 1.4 billion year old Precambrian granites, and they're directly overlain by 300 million year old limestone. So there's 1.1 billion years of the geologic record that's missing. Zoom over to Missouri and it's Missouri. Did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Missouri. It's one same, like almost same age, 1.4 ish billion year old rhyolite in the St. Francois mountains (laughs) that are overlain by 500 year old sandstone. 
And so there's done a lot of studies on this, but tectonic uplift associated with the breakup of the ancient supercontinent Rodinia is shown there. And so you had all this mass erosion uh, that happened 9 billion years are missing. And so I think they've basically come up with a figure of like six vertical kilometers of fresh rock uplifted at the end of the Precambrian. And it allowed with that, that steep of an uplift, you're going to have an immense erosion rate hey, from runoff and whatever. Brian. Yeah. Can can I ask you a question? So it says nine billion years missing. Is that million? I think oh, it should be nine million or nine hundred million. Oh uh, yeah, it should be nine. Actually, nine hundred million. Okay, right. I just yeah, I don't know. You're right. <laughs> I can't do I can't do math, but I saw a billion. You're I'm like, like, Earth is not even that old. Yeah, I put a B there. I no. Don't know why. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. But yeah, so like you have like, and this is also seen in Scotland. It's seen uh, in different places around the globe. I think Scotland may have been where it was first realized, but this is the great unconformity, and it's actually a non-conformity, right? Because it's sedimentary rocks after periods of missing time is deposited over igneous or metamorphic rock. Yeah, so, it's so it a, really should be the great non-conformity. Yeah, but, but I mean like an unconformity in that general sense, but then the, the type of unconformity is, is a non-conformity because it's right. non-sediment and sediment. I yeah. think that's how it works. Yeah, no, Sicker Point in Scotland's kind of cool. It has the angular unconformities and it has a whole bunch, but that's where James Hutton really kind of re-examined yeah. it and was just like, huh, there's something going on here and this kind of where you get that uh, uniformitarian with the, we kind of get that. That's really where we get that shift from the catastrophism to uh, uniformitarianism. And right, yeah, it shows the like different breakups of the continent and like the then like tectonic history is shown there. Yeah, no, and yeah, I and cool. also you can see all three types of unconformities in the Grand Canyon. I will post a picture of that on our Instagram, and I'll point them out to you. I cool. think uh, for the sake of time, we should really get into. You know, I already forgot about Mineral Minutes. Mineral. <laughs> Mineral. Mineral Minutes. Minerals. <laughs> All right, so today's Mineral Minute is sponsored by the Sodium Aluminum Silicate Cum Dicolite with a chemical formula of NaAlSi3O8. Cum Dicolite was named after its type locality of Lake Cum Dico, diamond deposit in Cum Dicoy. Oh, Cum Dicol. I can't say those words. Something complicated. <laughs> okay, so Comdicolite is a member of the Feldspar group, and it is an orthorhombic high-pressure polymorph of albite. It may be a metastable phase formed at high temperatures followed by rapid cooling in the absence of water. So this mineral is a micrometer uh, inclusion on umphacite. Comdicolite geological setting is found in eclogite from ultra-high pressure. Mass- so another setting is as inclusions in garnet and a diamond bearing felsic garnet kyanite feldspar <laughs> quartz granulite as seen in the bohemian massive stay tuned for our next week's sponsor fuck a light all right i'm gonna mineral minutes mineral mineral <laughs> okay all right um that's ridiculous okay <laughs> i can't wait until saturday now it's time to go straight into. We got my favorite journey. So, uh, so this is our podcast, and uh, we do. So we talk about rocks at the beginning, and then we talk about rocking out on the second half. It's called that freaking rocks. I'm gonna do this. 
All right, so we have made it to another That Freaking Rocks. That Freaking Rocks. That so Freaking Rocks. With us on the line, we have a friend of mine. He is the owner of the Fort Worth Guitar Academy. In Fort, I guess that's in Fort Worth. That's redundant, James. And then he's also a <laughs> member of the band Patient Zero. Mr. Eric Barrasso, welcome, sir. Hey, thanks for, for having me. And quick correction, it's now Fort Worth Music Academy oh, because we are doing more than the guitar. But it was Fort Worth Guitar Academy when you were there. And just for your audience, so everybody knows, James Professor The Hobbs is <laughs> one of the coolest <laughs> guitar students I have ever had the pleasure of working with. Oh, you're so nice. So I, I meant I couldn't get to this <laughs> fast enough, but... That's, that's your welcome. <laughs> so, I, mean, I love it. It's, 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 it's kind of like, you say that, and I feel like this is the kind of uh, guitar student I was. <laughs> I don't know. We have so many no, fun. So here's, here's what made you a great uh, guitar student is, number one, you had lots of questions. You always brought a good attitude, and you were always eager to learn. And so I feel like that is really the, the combination that requires. Well, I mean, and you know, you know, as a, as a professor, yeah. what, what it's like. I mean, people have to want to be there. And when they're willing, and of course, you cracking jokes all the time, always kept saying, I, I, <laughs> I did always crack <laughs> jokes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, okay. The question that I wanted to ask you is, you do run this music academy now, and that's what I was going to say. So it's not just guitars anymore, but so how has it been like with that, uh, the whole COVID transition type stuff? Yeah, yeah. So just to, to backtrack real quick, we started, like I started just teaching guitar out of my house several years ago, like 10 years ago. And then I had a mom say, hey, can you teach my kiddo piano? And I was like, uh, okay. And so <laughs> I kind of just made it up as I went and learned the ropes and just made sure I was always one step ahead of the student, which honestly is kind of how I started teaching guitar. So then I was like, cool, guitar and piano. And then I opened the school officially and it was Ridgely School of Music. And then I hired a violin teacher. Yeah. And so we kind of branched out a little bit, but then I had this business mentor who was like, now you got to focus on one thing and just be the best at it. So I was like, all right, cool. Forward Guitar Academy. And uh, so I'm like, we're just going to do guitar and, Honestly, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot. I was like, I liked it when we had these other instruments. Then I've been in the process of changing it to Fort Worth Music Academy. So that's the uh, unnecessary Ooh. backstory. No, so I mean, I always thought it was cool. So like I would come in and there'd be, yeah, cause, I mean, I think I saw it grow from just even the time that I was doing guitar lessons there with you, right? So like it was, I, it was mostly guitar, right? So we, I did like the shred class because I was like, yeah. I want to play, learn how to play lead guitar. And then, so, but like slowly it, you would see like, we'd come in and there'd be like playing the piano and then you would have classical guitar and bass and yeah singing and it's and it's really cool what i think you do like a really good job of is like so you're you're the 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 kids right so you you introduce to it and then like you do you have them play like rock shows right yeah so you know we we do concerts i, I think that's a really important part of of growing up and number one just beyond music for for kids and our approach to kids and adults is totally different right most yeah. adults have zero desire to play live. They're not, they're not <laughs> like you. They're not like, I want to play in a band. I want to get out there. 
because, you know, over time we develop all these insecurities mm-hmm. um, as adults and we've been beaten up by life enough that it's like, I just want to sit alone in a bedroom and relax, maybe play for my spouse. And that's it. I don't need judgment in another area of my life. <laughs> but kids, kids have no in- insecurities. They come to the table just like, I'm here to have fun. It's no problem getting them on stage and giving them that experience because, I mean, you know what it's like to, to get on stage and how terrifying it is yeah. at first. It takes right. It takes a while to get used to. When you can do that for kids at a young age, get them playing with other people, interacting and connecting in that way with other people and with an audience before they know better, then they're ready for it by the time they, they grow up. And then even beyond music, they're ready to be on stage in front of an audience and they can give presentations and they're ready for the real world. Exactly, exactly. No, and then that's what I try, even in my line of work at school, like I try, I work with high school students too as a uh, extracurricular thing for them. But we give them, they, they do presentations for in, at like academic conferences and in, in, in more academic setting. But either way, as a student, I never really got that as a, when I had guitar lessons when I was like 10 years old, I was never exposed to that. So, I mean, you're just, they're, they are light years ahead of the curve, right? <laughs> and I, and I applaud you for that. That's amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, honestly, it's, 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 it's a bit of a stressor when we do the concerts, um, <laughs> but I know how important it is and, and how good it feels afterwards. After it's, it's a bit emotional for me, honestly, you know, once you get up and you kind of see like, oh yeah, this is why we do it and you see everybody get together and give each other a coronavirus and <laughs> right and that way. And it's just a beautiful thing. Oh, so to, to answer your first question, yeah, the, the pandemic, man, we had to quickly move everything online and we went ahead and we were proactive about it. We did it before the government officially shut down because we saw what was happening in New York and California and we're like, it's coming here. So we yeah. better do it now. So we switched everybody to online. Incredibly, we didn't lose single student in the month of March going into April. Now going into May, we lost a few, right? And then that's when we started our kind of downhill trajectory. So we were down about 25% for that quarter, which was pretty average Mm -hmm. for most music schools. And as of September, we are now back to where we were a year ago, last September, and we have a mix of students coming online and coming in person. And it's really a testament to the quality of the families that we serve, the commitment that they've had. Pretty much anybody who could stay with us that didn't lose their income, they did. They they stuck with us through all of it, and we're we're so grateful for it. And I think that's more a testament to how you you do things over there. Because I mean, I mean, the only, I mean, the reason why I stopped going is I just ran out of time, and then <laughs> there is so much going on. Your schedule became crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I started like that because when you when you started, man, you you had nothing but time. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, like because I mean, like that's what I was doing. So like when I graduated with with the masters, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend some time time to learn how to play guitar, which I feel like I still use yeah. the, some of the techniques today. I mean, like clearly I, I mean, I don't. So like that, that was a good thing about the, the, the lessons too, is it like kind of forced you to be better. Like you were saying at the beginning, like do you either want to do it or you don't want to do it. And I'm sure you can For tell sure. being the teacher who wants to be there and who doesn't want to be there. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. like it's, it's the way you go about it. It's you, I think you're realistic about your approach in that you, you made it clear that it's, it's not an easy 
easy thing where you have like these guitar people that are like, oh, learn how to shred in just 15 minutes a day for like two weeks and you should be like this guitar god. <laughs> but whenever we were texting earlier, I was like, I'm going to give it back to you. Like when we'd be doing the scales, you'd be like, all right, you can see that you can do the scales. Well, uh, how about you tell me the notes when you're playing them? And I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, God yeah, damn and I, 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 <laughs> I have to give credit to a former teacher and, and business mentor of mine. He eventually kind of went, uh, a li- I discovered he was a little crazy, but in the beginning, it was really a beautiful thing. I learned a lot from him. And one of those things was not just keeping students physically engaged, moving their fingers on the fretboard, but keeping them mentally engaged. So I strive to make sure that students, by, when they, by, by the time they leave the lesson, I want their fingers to be tired and I want their brains to be fried. <laughs> I, and that's definitely what I got out of it is the, I feel like you can get that, uh, that muscle memory up, but if you don't, it, <laughs> just the, I still have, I'm still like a sharp. <laughs> no, it's, it's better than that. I mean, dude, I watched you. I watched you. I watched how good you became and how much progress you made from the time you, you had started. So, you know, it's like anything else. My, my goal is, one of my goals is to challenge students in the way that they're probably not going to challenge themselves at home, right? So you get on YouTube, you're like, oh, let's learn some cool licks today. You're going to learn it. You're going to maybe jam with it. And then you're going to move on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of it as if you were to go to like fitness classes or something, right? If you're just lifting weights by yourself, you know, you're going to do your reps and everything. But if you're working with a trainer, you know, you're going to be working way harder when you're with them and they're going to push you to be even better. And so that's what I want for our students after the lesson. Oh, no, 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 go Especially ahead. Especially if you're having them do concerts and stuff. Because, I mean, there is nothing like your first time on stage your hands do not work the way they <laughs> they should. Oh yeah, and if, even yeah. if you take a break for a while, like you'll you still have that that hesitation or like nervousness. And so I think that's awesome that you you put that on these kids. And and even during COVID, you're you might be the one thing they're looking forward to this week that's normal <laughs> for them. So that's that's super awesome. That's a big part of our mission. I, I tell I was sending someone an email the other day and it's on the front page of our website. We want your lesson to be the highlight of the week. And the yeah. reason why is because that I, I want it to be I want it to be challenging, but I also want it to be an escape from the real world. So you come in, all the problems disappear for the week and you just get to be in this happy little place for 30, 45, 60 minutes. And because that's how it was for me. Once I found because I had some bad experiences with teachers growing up, but once I found a great teacher it became the highlight of my week and I always look forward to it. So I, I, I'm always striving to recreate that for our students. And I remember reading an interview with Tom Morello from years ago and they were like, what, do, what advice do you have for people who want to play live? And he's like, you're going to suck for a long time and you just have to do it. And you have to keep doing it and keep doing it and you have to work it like a muscle and eventually it just becomes second nature. And it's the only way to get good. No, yeah, and I and I agree that I we just recorded a song like with with my band, like our first like single, and how like it sounds so yeah, awesome. Congratulations! I know I was like, but it sounds so good on that. But like when we go back to the practice space, right? <laughs> so we've pra- we like we practice, we try to practice every week. Uh, but you know, with the pandemic, we can't do that always. But um, always crazy like how bad it sounds like the first like two or three times that we go through the <laughs> set and then by the end where it kind of like gets all like going and you're like man i don't want to stop but then it's just like <laughs> but it, i know yeah. what you're talking about there's there's like this in there's this intangible thing you know when you when you see like a local band versus like a real pro band and and especially if you see like 
the okay local band opening for the band that's been doing it forever. Yeah. It's like you can't even pinpoint exactly what it is. They're just together. It's just tight. Yeah. It's, they just know what they're doing. And it's that X factor that only comes from years and years of, of playing live shows. That's that's what I like to compare like my band compared to Brian's band because Brian also plays in a <laughs> band. He plays in a... Uh, so I don't, oh, know if, I don't know if you ever remember like I was like, oh, my buddy's band plays in that like instrumental ambient band. This is that guy, uh, Eric. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, right so, on. Yeah, cool. so it's like, yeah, but we all play ambient. So like while James is over here shredding, I'm like, ping. It's like, I have like a bunch of reverb, but it's tight. You, you hit one listen, note like, and it like echoes throughout the yeah, everything. Exactly. Yeah. Like massive wall. But no. no, I mean, I've been there. Like, there was like, we don't practice. Like, our bass player lives in Colorado. We are oh. all spread out. And so we, we play to a click track because we have a light show. And so we have to be on, or else it looks really stupid when the lights are <laughs> going off and. We're not hitting that. Wait, so well, how do we, you guys play shows? Do you, you we, guys travel? Yeah, we we do. Not now, but tell them about you did. played up. Right. You played um, Post Fest up in wherever. Where was that? Uh, Indianapolis. Yeah, we do Austin a lot and just DFW mainly. I don't even know when things will get normal again. So we did a. Well, I guess we did a live stream this year, like everyone else out there. So, yeah, so. <laughs> but I I remember like there was a period of time where we didn't practice and everyone was supposed to practice on their own, and we came together at the show and we like did the sound check, and I was like, oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> and we like <laughs> I like went and regrouped with the drummer, I was like we gotta do something. So we like just had a talk and like. We ironed out the issues. It was like, oh no, that's we're adding an extra count here. That's what's wrong, kind of thing. So it's just you're yeah, right. You know, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just nothing that can replace being together in the same room with the rest of the band. Right. And yeah, yeah, for sure. So we we've all learned that lesson at one point or another. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, oh, yeah. but I, yeah. there's no better feeling because I still I think I'm still chasing that that high from the first show that I ever played and just like how nervous like I threw up and I got drunk and then I was like oh my god because <laughs> I, I was so nervous I like, I do it I just can't help myself yeah but so then how how. How did you, so like I play and like post hardcore, Brian plays ambient. And so you're in like this, like pure, it seems like pure punk. It's like, I think yeah. like, it's not even pop punk. It's just like straight up like punk it's rock. Punk, punk. <laughs> it, it's yeah. It's, it's hardcore punk in the vein of, you know, that late seventies, early eighties, black flag and minor yeah. threat, that kind of stuff. So the way it, it happened was these, these were, guys that that I knew and of course I grew up on like Blink 182 and like suburban pop punk and mm-hmm. that eventually led me into what I considered the hard stuff which was like 90 SoCal skate punk but then of <laughs> course I get together with these guys you know and uh and they're like let us show you some real punk rock and, <laughs> like um, and rancid <laughs> yeah, yeah so so rancid is is a great example of a band i grew up on and then this is one step further yeah. than oh, this rancid. is like one step to the left of of rancid and then yeah, you and yeah, then so we're and talking this is always the problem whenever yeah, I mean, you're not face to face it's like uh, 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 it, uh, yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like one, our, our longest song, I think, is like two and a half minutes, and we oh call that God. our prog rock song. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell Whoa. you what, there's something, so it's, what's funny is, like, I, I practice the crap out of my guitar, and I do, like, I love shred guitar, and Joe Satriani is my hero. We have an idol to him at the music school. 
And so I work on some pretty complex stuff. But what I found was when, when I do like my instrumental rock stuff, I love recording it and writing it, but playing it live is the worst because <laughs> there's so many notes. And it's yeah. like, you have to really be on. And when I play this stuff, punk rock, it's just pure, unadulterated aggression. And I just get to jump around. I don't have to think about anything. I get to play the song and I get to have a blast and it's just a party on stage. So is that yeah, why, is that, is that why you chose bass? Uh, no, they, they chose me to play bass. Because <laughs> what, what, it, what, what it was was they needed a place to rehearse. Yeah. So I was friends with these guys and I was like, oh, you guys come up to my music school. You guys can use the place once a week. And then they had me fill in for a couple of shows and they're like, hey, can you play bass? You know, like every bassist in a punk band, they're all guitar players. Yeah, uh, most of them, you know, and they just end up. They're like, "Wow, we need a bassist." So here you play bass. So that's that's why I'm playing bass in the band. But I I really I really like it just because it's it's different than the stuff I'm normally doing. So it doesn't feel like work. It feels more like just hmm. play. I feel like that you have a very important role because if the bass messes up, that's when like you miss a note or like you just don't hit a note. Everything just has a blip and everyone's like, what? <laughs> What's what, going what on? Is that? <laughs> it's true. The guitarist messes up. They're like, oh yeah, I did that on purpose. That was my feedback <laughs> note thing. We've talked about this too before, Brian. Like at what point do you give up kind of like that technicality, crisp, yeah. like clean sound for like, cause I know like half of like the punk, like you just jump around what you're saying and, it, and it's more energetic and it's fun to see. Like, right. So at what point do you sacrifice that for technicality? Yeah, I, I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down, I don't even know if I'm directly answering the question, but I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to mostly human connection. When, yeah. when it comes to music. Like, that's what I have the most fun is just playing with other people on stage. So if I have to choose between playing really crazy, insane music by myself in my office or playing really simple music where I get to connect on stage with other guys and hang out with our audience and, and do that, I'm going to take connecting with those people every day of the week. But then when it comes to, like, the technical part of it, so, like, I know there, there are a couple of harder parts that I have in a few of the songs. And so I will jump around a little less when I'm doing those parts to make sure they're correct. But the main thing, and, I, and I'm sure you guys know this too, the, the most important thing, more than correct notes, is the rhythm. That momentum has to keep going. So even if I hit a stray note, I hit a wrong note, it doesn't happen super often, but it, but it definitely happens at least once a show. <laughs> and when I hit that wrong note, I just keep thumping and I keep going, find the right note again and make sure the rhythm stays alive. Yeah, at the end of it, no, one, the most no one's really going to remember that one. No one's there, though. What are going to remember is how our singer fell off a six-foot stage and landed directly on his head. Oh, my God. The monitor crashing oh. down after him on Saturday. That's what people remember. <laughs> Those are the moments we're trying to create. Oh, Jeez. God. Yeah. In, in my band, I call myself uh, the guitar humorist. So, like, when I mess up a note, like, I'll just, like, completely just, like, turn my guitar off to see if, like, anybody notices. <laughs> and then, like, it, it takes about it takes a good about like 10 to 15 seconds to where people are starting like this doesn't sound kind of what's going on but i'm still like looking like i'm playing <laughs> yeah oh man 
if I do that, I like we're in a heavy part. I just go and like run my guitar neck all up and down my amp and just make weird sounds. <laughs> you can, you yeah, can get away with yeah. it, Brian. <laughs> you know, and that's that's really good. And we, I talk about that with with students. The importance of not just hitting the right note, but what are you doing in between the notes? And that's a yeah. great solution, Brian. I love that. Yeah, if you mess up and you don't know what's going on. You just slide your hand up and down that neck <laughs> and do all the tricks until you remember what comes next. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I had a question. So I actually didn't know you played bass in the band, so I apologize. But it, this question could still be relevant. What amps do you use? And do you use just the, the amp straight in or do you use gain from an amp or do you rely on pedals for your... For anything. Oh, okay. So I'll answer the question as a bassist at first and then as a guitarist second. So, as a bassist, like this is how obvious it is that I just kind of fell into this role in the band and I'm now growing into it is I just show up to gigs with a bass and the band has harassed me like Eric you have to start at least bringing a cable so now I bring a cable too Mm -hmm. I just want the DI (laughs) and we either run it direct or our singer has he's got this little Fender bumble amp Um, sometimes he brings a keyboard amp and I just plug into whatever's there but after we played with our friends, the punk rock band, Big Useless Brain, which they're awesome. They're probably the best punk rock band in, in DSW. And they, um, listening to their bassist, Micah, he runs this little micro head. Oh, God, I can't remember what it is, but it's on my list of things to get. So now that it looks like the band is actually like working and we're going to stick around for a while, yeah. I'm planning on actually kind of investing in, in a real bass rig because there's nothing like that punchy yeah. <laughs> tone for, for bass. And I like to keep the bass super clean because the guitars are so gnarly and yeah. distorted. <laughs> so for guitar, I've got a Mesa Boogie TC50, and it's probably the most perfect all-around amp I've ever had. It's a, mm. it's a half stack, and it's got three channels, and every single channel sounds wonderful. And then I also have a 1975 Fender Twin, and so that's mm. usually what I'm running all my, my pedals yeah. through. So, yeah, if I was going to be gigging with my instrumental shred guitar stuff, I'd be taking out the Mesa because that Fender Twin is super heavy and <laughs> I don't want to do anything. I don't want to, I don't really want to risk it. So I'll, I yeah. would take the Mesa out and I would take my pedal board with that. And I'm old school. James is. And I'm sure, I bet you are too, Brian, being in an ambient band, you use a lot of like boutique effects pedals and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in that same camp. And then for recording, I use a Friedman Runt 20 and I just run that direct into nice. my computer. Can I ask yeah. James, because James had some gnarly sounding heavy stuff. And I was like, what are you using? He's like, well, it's my Friedman pedal. Okay. Well, I need yeah, to what, this. yeah. I think it's called the dirty Shirley, right? I think that's what it was, but like, uh, yeah, so, yeah. so I mean, I, I've, so good. like I bought, I, I have a, a Marshall now, like for the head and like the only pedal that I use now, like I just straight up do the, the Marshall, distorted channel or the you know the one with the gain but anyways Mm -hmm. i just use the i just use the head now and then i'll use just the avalanche run that's all i use now i don't i just i'm one pedal guy now (laughs) that's awesome i'm I'm a big fan of that keeping it simple my pedal board is is pretty simple you know i've got a couple of delays like a clean delay and a delay for my leads and then I've got, of course, my wah, my whammy pedal, and then like a distortion and overdrive and a, a couple of funky, you know, just fun yeah. pedals. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm sure you have a lot of those, you, Brian. Yeah, Brian has a lot of Like Rainbow stuff. Machine or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do. And I like, I, I'm starting to kind of 
slim down a little bit, but like I use a, like my gain is I have a three pedals that are my like different stages, but right now I'm after a really like out there reverbs. That's kind of my, what I want to go for next, but also, Oh wow. You, you're, you're an ambient band and you're into super out there. Yeah. Reverb. yeah like, how original. <laughs> you do it. Y'all do you it well. But there is nothing like it. There's nothing yeah. like having a really incredible reverb. So the reverb pedal I use is the uh, new neighbor, yeah. uh, what is it, Seraphim, and it's got this shimmer effect on it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, super and nice. it, yeah, oh, and it just—it's one of those pedals that, yeah, you get a nice reverb pedal like that, or you know, like the Big Sky or whatever. Yeah, and you just hit <laughs> a note or a chord, and it's like, and just like let it trail off. Oh and no, I could get lost in that. That's where it's dangerous for me because I stop practicing and I start just like hitting like a harmonic and I just let it ring for two minutes. And before yeah. I know it, an hour has gone by and I've accomplished nothing. That's what I was saying. Like, like James is over here playing all this complicated stuff and I'm just like, ding. <laughs> I sent him like with our little, the thing, the music that led into this segment. Oh, this like, thing right here. He, he wrote that. Yeah. Oh, nope. <laughs> no, I hit the wrong one. <laughs> yeah. But he wrote that lead, and I'm just blaring like Hall Reverb. Over it's like, what? But yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Do you question? Do you run through your effects loop or straight in? Because I always run straight okay. in, but other people you know talking a lot about the effects loop. I consider myself to be a professional guitar player, and yet I feel like such a noob whenever this comes up. You have caught me. I still don't understand what the effects loop does. Me either. It just drops my power. Like. <laughs> I don't use that thing. I'm like, can you just, can you not make one with an effects loop and sell me the amp cheaper? Because <laughs> I'm not going to use it. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really simple. And so when, if I see somebody plugging in a pedal board from point A to point B, I'm like, okay, cool. I can work with that. When I start seeing the, the effects loop and they're like, oh, I'm going to run this through here. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you've lost me. I just need to be able to play. I don't understand. I have too many cables because I, I, I do mine through the effects loop just because uh, I play on that distorted channel and I don't want it. Oh, I, I, like I don't, I don't want that reverb before the, uh, the distortion or the gain. So I have it like afterwards because then, because my idea behind it is, is that if you were to do that, uh, if you do it in front of it, if you go straight in, then that signal is going to be distorted and it's going to just make it all so in in a traditional pedal chain right you have your distortions and your overdrives first you have your reverbs last Mm -hmm. going into the amp so how is that different than doing the effects loop because i think it it bypasses i mean like so how i do it since i'm using the gain and distortion from my amp like I don't want that that ambient or the delay in front of it, right? That 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 signal going oh. in. So I put it behind yeah. it in oh, that in that effects loop, and it kind of it 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 makes my sound. It, it doesn't. It's not making that delay distorted. It's the distortion is being delayed That's after. Cool. Oh, so it really is the same effect as if. Wow, now I feel like a, a true so, gun. So, so you're just like you're, switching it. Uh, yeah. So on your pedal board, you would never put the reverb before the distortion. So if you're using amp distortion. You can't put it um, yeah. after it unless you go through the effects. Yeah, work. or before, or because if, if you do it, if you, if, you, if you go straight in and you're playing that distorted, then it it, it sounds like boo boo. <laughs> yeah. So now, cool. now I, I may try it. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder yeah. how the I have a Fender Deluxe. I wonder how that sounds compared to my my distortions. I don't know. Like oh, if yeah. you had like a head like a, the Mesa, I'm sure has an amazing 
dirty channel. So that or like oh a Marshall Plexi. Yeah. Like I would not, if you have a Plexi head and you buy pedals to get your game, you just stop. You know what's really funny? I'm, I'm in the market for a Plexi pedal right now to run oh, yeah. under because I want to get that sound. I have so, a book. Either of you have the, advice. Yeah. It's one of my, my stage two is a Plexi replica. So yeah, what, what kind? It's called Stellar Drive. I actually don't oh. know who made this, but it sounds awesome. Oh, right on. Yeah, cool. Someone gave it to me. And they were like, Plexi sound. Yeah. Somebody gave really it to you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty sweet. Oh, man. I don't get it. I like, I don't understand how, like, so if, if anyone's out there listening, uh, what, what's your YouTube channel, Eric? It's Eric Barassa, B-O-U-R-A-S-S-A. If you just, if, if you were to search Eric Barassa guitar, I should come up and yeah, you'll see a lot of videos with a few hundred views and you'll see a couple where I'm, I've got a Parker fly and they're like 30,000 views yeah. and uh, yeah. lots and lots of hate. It's oh, awesome. oh I'm no. Proud. So, yeah. <laughs> that's tough skin, I, right? You got to, if you're putting yourself out there, then I, I feel like that's what I don't like about the internet. Cause you're trying to make a difference and put yourself out there. And then people are just like, Ugh, Ugh. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's hilarious because all my Parker videos were from like five years ago and I had bought, I only have one Parker now, but I had bought and sold several of them and I was super into them and they were pretty, pretty popular at the time before they went out of business. And now they're really hard to find. So there wasn't a whole lot of content out there on them. And I had just started my YouTube channel. So that was the first stuff I made. I had no idea what I was doing. Nothing about lighting or sound or anything. And I, I made a really bold opinion um, about uh, the how I thought the newer Parker flies were better than the older ones. And I felt qualified to make that statement because I have each. But you know how people are like purists? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. there's nothing better than the original? Oh, my God. So I still get comments on a regular basis on that, like, four-year-old video. And someone's like, hey, man, just some advice. Here's some things you need to work on in your video. I was like, okay, cool, good. Thanks. I'll try to learn from your four year old video. Wow. Yeah, but you can make you can make the guitar sing there, Eric. He he does some pretty crazy stuff like with your your whammy bar. And I'm your, gonna have to check it out. Yeah, no, he's he's really like a professional guitarist. Like I I, I should probably come take lessons. Ding ding. I'm probably the most professional guitar player that doesn't understand an effect loop. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to because we'll like all you, my favorite part was coming to lessons and like you would you would do something in your in your facial expressions. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is I remember as a teenager like watching guitar players. I, I remember seeing somebody on Saturday Night Live. I can't remember who it was. I was like, why is he making that stupid face? I was like, that was dumb. Why would anybody do that? And and I never used to make faces, but you it just kind of naturally happens. You get to a point in your playing where you just start doing it and you don't even realize it. I don't know if it's because you get more comfortable with being on stage or because you get you reach a certain level of technique where you're starting to emotionally impact yourself. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, but it's... But, uh, I'm, I'm still on the... I, I don't play notes. It's like the right. dub face. It's like, you guys make what, faces when you play? Why? I don't think I'm, I do. We we always catch pictures like people shoot at shows and we're like, dude, we are all look like we're taking dumps because it's like <laughs> everyone's face. <laughs> yeah. like, and, and here's the thing. Do you even realize that you're making that face? No, no, never. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not a conscious thing. You just, you just it, do it. It just happens. It, you give yourself the yeah. feels. No, I'm still, I'm still like to the point to where I'm like, am I, what am I, what's going on? Where no, am I, where you, am I? you make faces. 
Uh-uh. Like, so James had to learn all our songs because oh, yeah. <laughs> I was having a baby at the time that we were going to be touring up to Indiana. And so he learned all the, our songs and was, came to practice and jammed. And it, you totally make faces, dude. Uh, I don't know. It's- oh, sweet. <laughs> Hold out. Congratulations. Hey, Welcome to the, the club. <laughs> I'm, but I need to, what I need to do is practice it. But then like, you know, then I'm, I, I don't want to, I want to be more like punk rock, Eric, and be bouncing around stages. And that's what I need to, <laughs> I don't know how to practice that because it hurts. Because like getting old, like I'm th- like almost 40, I'll be 40 in a couple of years right so but playing in a hardcore band like i'd want to headbang during a lot of the songs but uh, how, do you, yeah. how the hell do you practice that you don't i don't yeah know. i can't do that like and my neck hurts yep, yep so i can't yeah because of my uh yeah but, but when i turned 30 like that's when i started to be in constant pain yeah somewhere in my body all the time and so now 35 and i am almost always super tense in like my traps and my my back Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can't, I can't headbang. What I can do, cause I run a lot, I, I jump. I mostly just do that like punk rock jump yeah. and I jump around and thrash around. I have to, I have to actually practice that a little bit at, at rehearsals. And then the next day after a show, oh. like after practices, you know, I kind of hold back, but after a show, <laughs> all that energy and adrenaline, dude, I am so the next oh, day yeah. and it's just always regret yeah no every time like i try to go for it at practice to practice pra- yeah that's what practice is for right <laughs> and i'm like i'll, I'll go for yeah. it and then it, it it's i i feel like it for one i feel like an idiot because i like like you like <laughs> i've i've started over the i feel like there's like this uh there should be this positive correlation of the older i get the higher up i play my guitar because it hurts my wrist playing so low <laughs> so it's like i feel oh, like yeah. i feel like a bass player now because it's like above my belly button but then i'll like try and like headbang and then i'm just like i screw up the notes because it's not where my <laughs> normal like that's all i know because <laughs> you saw when i when i when i would teach i always had the guitar up high uh-huh. i i have no shame about it you know if I'm playing easy stuff so like when i'm when i'm playing bass in punk rock band i, I have the bass you know kind of low and but when i'm playing guitar and i have to do like bar chords and and shredding stuff and everything yeah, man, that does a number on the wrist. And so I'm like, you know what? I want to be able to do this when I'm like 80, 90 years old. So that's, yeah. that's what I'm thinking about. But I mean, you just, people look exponentially cooler when that guitar is like below, it's like almost to their knees and they're like going, <laughs> kind of like, uh, what's this yeah. Jesse, yeah. the who we got less, uh, he, he taught up there. He plays that super low. Oh I'm yeah. Like, how do you do that? Yep. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. He yeah. Some kind of, yeah, like, it's incredible. But the thing is like, I remember thinking Tom, long because you know blink yeah. Two is, is it for me right so i worshiped those guys growing up and tom long always wore his strat super low i was like god he looks so cool uh-huh. yeah. come to find out years later he ended up having back surgery and he was in constant pain <laughs> oh no dang <laughs> yeah oh, so it's yeah. it's like you know you gotta some compromises as you get older no i think i think that's the moral of the story right there is because i feel like it's a <laughs> in, it's like almost like it's cool to be uncool with the guitar now like especially with like the the math rock and all that kind of uh, yeah the prog, prog it's like uh or that's cool to but I feel like you have to if you want to like what is it like Pliny and all those people that are like (laughs) oh yeah 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 Yeah. Pliny man I saw him live and he came out in this shirt that looked like it hadn't been washed and was like hanging down over one of his shoulders (laughs) I was just like man who is this bum you know but then of course (laughs) 
And he, he worked his guitar super high, and then he just proceeded to dazzle all of us, and nobody in the audience cared. Yeah, yeah. like I, and I want my brain to work like that. Like I half want to go halfway, want to go that way with music, but then also I want to go like just I'll just keep turning down the tuning because I think the the most recent one I think I'm in A sharp, <laughs> drop A sharp. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still in standard. What? I got a ways to go. Yeah, I still play standard. Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, but that's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Eric, for taking the time out of your time to uh, taking your time out of your time out of your day to chat with us. Hopefully, everyone out there enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so excited that you guys asked me to do this. It was, it was really fun getting to uh, getting to hang with you guys. Until then, there. this has been another episode of Geology on the Rocks. I'm your host, as always, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. Stay tuned and keep it on the rocks. <laughs> This is, I, I legit learned these uh, techniques uh, from doing lessons with you, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> cool. I'm going to fade this out. kind of had a punk vibe here for a minute. You'll hear the woo, woo, woo. <laughs>